I'm the Property Funder, better known as Michael Dean, and this is the Property Funder podcast. I'm a successful entrepreneur, investor, NED and advisor. As co-founder of Avermore Capital, I'm best known for having financed over a billion pounds of property developments and investments by value during my career so far. During my time in business, I've come across an incredibly broad spectrum of successful people all with their own unique experiences working in a variety of industries. I want to speak to these people and learn more about them. I'm not looking to have the world's biggest podcast, so if just one person benefits from what my guests have to say, then that to me would look like success. And if you are that one person, then you should probably not tell anyone about this. Welcome to the Property Funder podcast and uh, today I am here with Robert. Before we start speaking to Robert, if you are a returning listener uh, or viewer, um, could you please like and subscribe and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, could you give us a five-star rating please? Now, uh, without further ado, Robert, uh, what's your full name? What is your business? And please describe what your business does. Thank you, Michael. Delighted to have the opportunity. Uh, my full name, Robert James Orr. Um, I would probably describe myself as a, an experienced real estate funder specialising uh, at this point in residential development. Um, I'm currently working as a, an advisor to Paragon Development Finance, which finances broadly residential properties, but also some purpose-built student um, across Great Britain. So that's where I am at the moment. Now, uh, Robert, for those that don't know, is is quite the doyen of uh, uh, development finance and uh, certainly was uh, very influential in the resurgence of the development finance industry for the for residential developers in uh, it, around the turn of the, the GFC. Um, but Robert, let's let's go through your story, your timeline line. Um, how, how did you get into the world of finance and banking and then what led you to Titlestone and then eventually uh, Paragon Bank? Yeah, well, uh, you have to go way back to um, 1980, 1982 when I was doing my uh, A-levels. And um, for those of us who can remember that, it was a tough time for the British economy. It was sort of Margaret Thatcher giving it a sort of um, medicine to try and get rid of uh, tough inflation. Um, unemployment was particularly high. And I was doing economics accountancy as part of my A-levels. And so therefore, there was always a general feel that that sort of finance bit would be something that would interest me. I didn't come from anyone in my family who'd been in finance. My father was in a pharmaceutical company, as was my older brother. A lot of teaching in my family, a few head teachers knocking around, aunties, uncles, nephews. Um, but I didn't want to go to university um, and joined the good old National Westminster Bank uh, in 1982. Um, and that was a time when getting a job was important because, as I said, unemployment was high. 
Um, didn't know it was something I was going to do for a long time, but um, gradually got onto one of their management development programs and my career sort of accelerated from there. Um, although there is a sliding door moment that you sometimes have in life because I was a slow starter at NatWest. Uh, and I think if you looked at me after about 18 months, when I was still upstairs in the sort of machine room, they call it sorting out checks and gyros and standing orders and direct debits and that sort of thing, you would have thought this guy's not going to go that far. And I don't know if you remember, there was a film or a TV series in the early 80s called Miami Vice. And uh, does that ring a bell? Uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, was it Don Johnson? Uh... Yeah, Don Johnson driving a Ferrari Testarossa around Miami, which was always a strange choice for an undercover policeman, but there you go. <laughs> Was and, it with, uh, the, with the polo shirts and the jackets exactly. above above the elbows? Yeah, uh, yeah. a strong look. I, I did I did try that look once and uh, <laughs> never again. And uh, you know, shoes with no socks and blah blah blah. Um, but I was quite taken by that, and I had the idea. I lived down on the south coast, and I had the idea that wouldn't it be great to go and sort of um, join the customs and revenue, I think it was called at the time, and go on high-powered speedboats around the Solent and the Isle of Wight chasing drug smugglers. And uh, so I applied for the, the job and did all the civil service exams and actually got offered a job. But instead of being the Miami Vice bit or Southampton Vice, you might call it, um, it was uh, immigration control at Gatwick Airport. So <laughs> that uh, was, a, was a firm no. And I stayed on at NatWest, but it's, it's always interested to me that if they had offered me that sort of job, um, working the sort of customs and excise around Southampton docks, you and I probably wouldn't be speaking type of stuff. So, uh, but you yeah, know, you never know. <laughs> you never know. But <laughs> I stayed know. on at NatWest, and as I said, I managed uh, through a bit of luck and a bit of judgment that's been the sort of uh, hallmark of my career to get on an accelerated management program. And that really turbo boosted my career. I, I then went from uh, working in Southampton, Totten was my first branch up to the city, came up to the city in about 1989 um, and spent 15 years at NatWest, which was fun. Uh, I always like to say I, was, I left before the um, RBS took it over. So I can always say it was fine when I left. Mm -hmm. um, but a bit like the army, um, the the more senior you get in the clearing banks at that time, the further away you got from the front line. And um, my last job at NatWest, having spent all my time in frontline credit or with customers, was to work in the strategy unit in head office. And I realised immediately I'm not a very good politician. Uh, you know, I like to say what I think and get things done. Um, whereas there, it was more really, you know, how you do it, who you you talk to to get things done. There was a process. So I just thought, you know what, 15 years, not for me. And then got an opportunity to join um, a merchant bank called Close Brothers, um, who I'm sure a lot of your uh, listeners will will know. A great opportunity to join them around about 1997 um, and specialised then in residential development. Um, very lucky to be, you know, with them. They were growing their team. When I joined, I think there were sort of less than 10 in the property team and was with them all the way through um, up to and past the um, 
the credit crunch, if, if you want to call it that, in 2008. And that was a really interesting period. Um, we used to watch the likes of RBS and Anglo-Irish Bank and the Bank of Scotland competing on risk and LTV and really pricing us out of the market in 2005, six and seven. And you needed a lot of patience. But the great thing that then happened was they all toppled over along with the, the sort of Scottish, Irish, Icelandic banks. And the conversation changed from what's your price to are you lending? <laughs> and uh, I've always said to people, when you get a position where clients phone up and say, are you lending rather than what do you charge? Uh, you know you're in good business. Um, and it was a great place to be from that 2009 onwards. Um, you did have a feeling in the early part of 2009 as if when everyone else had stopped basically lending and Close Brothers was the only one lending, um, whether everyone else knew something that we didn't. Were, were we the people that were happily, you know, walking towards the edge of the cliff, you know, oblivious to the market conditions? But as it happened, the market turned um, and we were able to lend well at good margins with never taking advantage of clients. I think that was probably the, the main thing that we always said to ourselves was, you know, we may be one of the only lenders here, but let's remember the relationship. Let's remember that, you know, better times will come and you don't want to be seen as usury during that time. Um, and then I spent broadly 15 years at Close Brothers. So the 15 year alarm clock went off again. Um, <laughs> I must admit I was getting a little bit, you know, what else can I do? Um, and I always remember one moment which summed it up for me. Close Brothers um, did and maybe still do do a sort of motorsport day where they invited all their clients up to a place up in um, near Bedford, I think. And I, I'd been to on this thing about eight, nine times and the invite came out again and I was like, oh, I really don't feel like going. And I thought, Robert, what are you doing? This is a great event and you're getting bored. So that was probably a time for me to go. Who else is around? And it was just one of those very strange coincidences because I didn't want to work for a clearing bank again. There were very few lenders who I thought were better than Close Brothers. And um, I got a phone call from a debt fund called Oak Tree Capital, who I'd never heard of, if I'm honest with you. I didn't work in those circles. And um, they had been out trying to poach a few of our teams. So I knew their name and they said, you know, can we come and have a cup of coffee with you? And I was just intrigued because I almost wanted to know who are these people that are trying to poach some of our team. Uh, and I met with a, uh, a couple of the guys from Oak Tree and they told me what they were trying to do uh, in terms of setting up a new lending business that wanted to be counter cyclical. It wanted to sort of lend at higher LTVs. It wanted to break the sort of senior debt mezzanine model and have a whole loan solution. Um, it, it turned out to be called Stretch Senior, but I, it wasn't called Stretch Senior at that meeting. And I'd love to tell you that I was the guy who invented the term, but I didn't. But it was a useful definition. And um, at that meeting, they said to me, I don't suppose you'd be interested. Um, and I replied, um, well, I don't think you'd be able to afford me, which was an interesting answer that came completely <laughs> out of my heart. And they did say, God bless them. Well, you know, let's not talk about, you know, that. Let's talk about whether you're interested. And it was just one of those things where 
um, it was the right time. Um, but it was a risk, you know. I I am a man who's got five children and still had five children then, and still have tried five children now. And it was like, well, I'm happy at close, you know. I'm in a pretty senior position. You could spend a long time there, but there was just something about that, you know. Come along and be employee number one. Be the blank piece of paper. Choose the company name. Do the strategy, build a team. Let's go on this journey. Let's see if we can build something of value of interest. And um, I, I was very tempted. And I tell you this story. Uh, I went on holiday to Antigua in the April 2012. And I was having like doubts because I think as you do, you've you've had that sort of initial discussion, the business plan, everyone showed you the Excel spreadsheets, the numbers, the projections. And I was like, am I really sure I'm going to do this? This could be an American hedge fund that, you know, we, we don't launch it. And, you know, six months later, I'm looking a bit of a clown because I've resigned from close and, you know, and that and um, my wife Elizabeth, God bless her, said on that holiday, look, you know, let's just do it because, you know, if someone else does it and they're super successful, how will you feel about it? And mm. uh, that was the motivation that I um, I wanted to do it. So I came back, resigned from close and um, spent the sort of the summer of 2012 getting ready for launch, which was going to be in the sort of August, September time, 2012. So, so I mean, I, I guess there's, I, I guess there's, a, a lot of uh, a lot of a, a lot of success is is about luck and timing, isn't it? And yeah. I guess as as a time in the market to be launching the product that you that you were mm. two, well, let's call it three years post GFC, three and a half years post GFC, things were starting to kind of come back come back to life, but mm. the fi- but the finance market was still um still pretty weak i would yeah. say uh the, the number of options for residential development finance were were very limited and everyone was very equity poor so mm. i guess the i mean for, for our listeners that don't know what stretch senior is it's effectively you you have normally you would take a senior loan so let's call it you know using natwest an example natwest will natwest will lend you 65 percent of the cost of the of the project and then a, a mezzanine lender would probably lend you another 15, 20, 25 percent of the project. You probably need to put the remaining 10 percent into that project. But so what what you were proposing to do then, Robert, so for our listeners, is to that you would combine both the senior and the mezzanine because you don't have you, you only have one set of legal fees and, it, and one counterparty on, on the lending. So so talk us through the launch of Titlestone and 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 how that and, and how that worked out for you and, ha- yeah, and was, how things it was, progressed it was very interesting so i mean i had great support from oak tree um who obviously uh, had experience of uh, you know project managers setting up teams getting premises it but it was really down to me with a blank piece of paper to say okay you know what's the product range going to look like where where do you want it to be um so we we picked on 70 percent gdv as the sort of marketplace for our product. And as you said, whole own provider. Um, and that was seen as attractive because obviously everyone had retrenched since uh, the credit crunch. And um, the likes of, I think from memory, Close Brothers may have been at sort of 50 to 55% LTV. And there were mezzanine funders out there who would then top up. But um, 
the clients that I knew had all had sort of difficulties um, to a certain degree, as everyone did in the credit crunch, and were sort of equity, as you say, poor, had the opportunity to buy sites out there because there were a few distressed sites and really were looking for people to say, look, this at this point in the cycle, lending us a bit more money is the right thing to do. So that was the product we were aiming at. Uh, we wanted to be in the sort of, I'm going to say a million to 25 million market, which I know sounds quite um, high in terms of debt range, but it was that sort of market. We didn't want to be in the sort of rarefied 30, 40 million pounds. Um, and my aim, if I'm honest with you, is to be the sort of a business that that Close Brothers would be like if it was a, a stretch senior. So that whole thing about value, relationship, treating the customers fairly, all that type of thing was uh, in my mind. Um, we had to um, decide um, what the business was going to be called. And, and that was a funny little story in that um, Oak Tree had a branding person come in because I was still working at Close and so didn't able to sort of dedicate uh, time to it too much and they spent a long time thinking about it and, you know when you want to launch a business getting your name is quite important because you want to do the sort of you know want to sign contracts you want to sign people and you want to do the branding etc and uh, the first name they came up was uh, appreciate um, and I I went no I don't like that why appreciate and they said oh well because you said that clients appreciate you and also property appreciates in value and I said well okay but what's your number two on your list and it was a um a honey court which was a French chateau and I just thought well I don't really like because I pronounced it wrong because you sort of need to have that inflection above the o I think or something like that <laughs> and I'm I, I said I don't even know where I'd go on my keyboard to actually put that inflection on you know so, I mean I, I struggle enough finding the euro button half the time uh, so I said Let, let's dump that um, let's go for something which has got something hard in the name like stone or flint uh, and maybe something at the front which is property related. Um, to be fair to them they came up with title stone relatively quickly after that but I still think you know given me I'd given a couple of hours I could have got that. Um, my wife suggested that we call it Stonewall forgetting that there was that sort of gay rights charity with Peter Tatchell called Stonewall and I did say to her that you know Robert Lee's close brothers to join Stonewall would be a different type of story <laughs> but, uh, so we ended up with title stone um, we had to make sure it wasn't domain named across the, um, the the world and luckily it wasn't so we were pleased about that um, the only thing there was was a um, one of those WWF wrestlers called Mr. Titlestone. So every time you Google Titlestone for the first month or so, we got this guy looking quite fierce on YouTube. So <laughs> we had to keep searching our name. Um, so that was great. And then we had to get the team together. And I was super lucky in that um, um, I managed to get a finance director of the name of Chris Proud, who joined me almost immediately. And that's what you need. You know, when you're when you're by yourself, you want a great number two to start with um, <clears throat> who can do the sort of credit and operations and the finance side that started to come together. Um, we had a um, some support staff came in and then we were looking at some of the um, originators and I was super lucky 
that again Simon Decker that people will know joined very early on from Investec. Um, I promised Close Brothers that I wouldn't pinch any of their staff at all and I kept that word uh, and have done um, which is you know not that we haven't tried but we never we never <laughs> succeeded during the, the 10 years I was in charge of uh, the business. Um, we also had uh, Oak Tree had um, appointed before my appointment um, a, an executive PA to be, and that was that was awkward because um, I like people who are very practical, you know, can arrange things. And this was someone who was more used to sort of finding out when my wedding anniversary was and buying children's birthday cards. And I really did say to her, "That's not really the role." And um, we had to, I had to let her go after about four weeks and there were only four of us. So we went down from four to three. And I, I do say, you know, that was probably one of my hardest ever HR decisions to actually take someone and say, look, you know, we're only four weeks in and I'm dropping 25% of our staff here. <laughs> stuff. So, uh, but yeah, it was about, we didn't do any advertising. Um, what we needed to do was get a loan management system in place because I think um, one of the lessons is you don't want to start your business on an Excel spreadsheet. Um, you want a loan management system that's going to launch and do all the statements and do all the interest calculations and get your management information right. And um, that's something we were fortunate enough to get relatively early on. I think we'd only written one or two loans. Um, and then it was really a question of the business sells itself. I was I was the only originator um, for the first two months until Simon Decker joined me. Um, and they were really interesting days. You know, you'd, you'd sit there. I think we launched on the 1st of August 2012. You hope the phone's going to ring. Um, we kept spreadsheets of every deal that ever came in and our first deal was a, a house on Wentworth that, you know, we said we weren't going to do too many big houses, but it's a great lesson that said the first deal that comes in, you think, oh, well, we've only got one deal, we better look at it. And we ended up doing it and getting repaid. So um, they were really interesting times, you know, you were working, you know, very long hours, trying to do all the operational stuff as well, doing the deals, getting the credit terms out. But I was a great one for let's do deals because, you know, it's you don't want to look for the perfect deal. You want to do the deals. And we ended up never really looking back from then. Um, we, we grew the business. Um, we had were lucky that people like Nigel Jackson came across from Dunbar. Um, Steve Mountain joined us um, from NatWest a bit later on. But that, that was the core of the business. We never really got more than about 13 or 14 people. Um, and the thing that really helped, again, this is where, where luck comes into it, is in 2013, um, permitted development rights appeared on the horizon. And for, for your listeners, that was where you could get permission to change uh, office buildings uh, into residential schemes just by putting in an application rather than going through the planning route. And if you think about the product that Titlestone had, which was um, relatively expensive, you know, talking about 12% fixed type money at the time, 70%, you want those deals to be quick in and out. And, and the one thing that permitted development right deals were, were quick in and out. And there were an awful lot of empty office buildings post the credit crunch sitting in quite nice residential areas, 
and a lot of our clients wanted to do them and they filled their boots with them and um at the peak you know our little business was writing 650 million pounds worth of of deals and on and heading towards you know 800 million um with projections and that type of thing so um again if the permitted development rights hadn't come about it would have been a different business um but that was something that absolutely turbocharged where we were and suited the clients very well and it was great um to support clients that you know i knew simon knew steve knew and nigel knew um, and sort of bring them on board and give them great service and give them a product that was fair simple you just paid an interest rate and fee no early repayments really you know we just used to say you know when you're done you're done and let's go on to the next deal um we had first mover advantage to use the nice business phrase which is sort of there weren't many stretch senior providers out there and then i guess what you did get to see was that other people went hey that's a good idea so from memory i think when i started pluto and maslow were mezzanine providers and moved into the stretch senior space and then you get various other debt funds that, that think well that's a good market to be in um and then you get other lenders who then go well you know 55 percent ltv is a bit a bit conservative we start we should move up to 60 and 65 and and you know in the end you know the cycle people end up at 70 until the market gets a bit too hot and then they sort of retrench back again so um titlestone launched as i said in in august 2012 and the aim of the business was always to find a seller a sort of buyer rather um, who um, would value not only the loan book but the the, the brand and the team and, and that type of thing and oak tree being a, a debt fund um, sort of had a five year horizon for that sort of thing to happen but obviously in, in the in the middle of that journey you had brexit in 2016 and you had a little bit of a knock with a sort of prime residential market um and we had made the decision in 20 i think 2015 that we didn't really want to be in the prime market anymore um i always remember and this this is something that i learned in in about 2006 i was I had a quiet day at close brothers and i was doodling what house prices were doing compared to average wages and you could see that they were becoming disconnected and i've still got that little graph that i drew on a piece of paper that said look you know wages are going pretty steady house prices are accelerating off house prices are either going to have to flat line for a long time so that wages catch up or wages are going to have to you know accelerate really fast none of those things tend to happen or guess what house prices might have to readjust back down to wages um but the the thing that really interests me is i didn't do anything with that information i just sat there and thought that's interesting because what could i have done i could have gone to the close brothers property board and said you know what i think there's a house price crash correction coming we should scale back all our lending we should put the staff on a bit of sabbatical take a big drop in market share um but that's not the way the world works when you're just part of a team 
But what I did say is having learned that sort of lesson that you really should do things that when I was running my own business, I'd have these early warning triggers. And when things did trigger, we would do things. And a few things triggered for us in the prime central market, you know, a thousand pound a square foot and above. And we decided to come out of that market um, to a certain degree, even though that would mean probably doing less business. And that's an interesting concept where you actually decide you're going to do less business and make less money, despite the fact you're building a business because you want to try and sell it in due course. And the, the thing that interested me was we're skipping ahead a bit, but when Paragon came to look at us and look at us as a management team, I think that was one of the things they took great comfort on, that we weren't just a, like just keep piling on, keep piling on. It was more like we can see that this management team have argued a case with its shareholders that they should actually do something that will actually mean they retrench a bit because they think it's right for the long term. And um, we're pleased that we did. I, there was never a massive crash, but, you know, people with memories will remember it got a bit sticky in the prime market, you know, houses on St. George's Hill and, uh, you know, Wentworth and all that type of stuff were taking a long time to sell because of oversupply and some places were getting hit post-Brexit. Um, but the, the business continued and then um, in around the sort of late part of 2017, so the five year anniversary was up, we were actually approached directly by a challenger bank. And at that point, Oak Tree said, well, we don't want to enter into sort of negotiations with one party. We want to go through a, a, a process of sale. So we employed a finance house who put a sort of beauty parade together in a, in a pack of projections and, and data and it went out to the market and um, Paragon were one of those lenders that um, were interested who had launched their development finance offering a few years earlier. I think it probably hadn't launched as well as they had ambitions for and were therefore in the market to say look can we buy not only a book but part of a management team and really sort of boost our market share because if if we don't do that maybe someone else will um and they ended up in july 2018 buying the business and uh, we came across there and um it's been it's been a great i i can talk about some of the lessons learned from being a being a sort of debt fund to being owned by a bank if you if you'd like me to but it was that was the, the timeline um, and and then how long did you spend at uh, how long have you been at Paragon since then? So you've been at Paragon the whole time, but you, yeah. you've, re you've recently had a change in role. But do you want to just talk I, about what you were doing when you moved across, and then how your roles changed just just recently? Yeah. So in July um, 2018, Paragon acquired uh, the Titlestone business, the loan book, and and the the team. Um, we rebranded it as Paragon Development Finance, so the Titlestone name was dropped. And I became managing director of the combined teams. We we re-engineered the business a bit because they are based in uh, Solihull as a as a HQ. Um, we really wanted the majority of our staff to be down in London, so we we recruited down here and re-engineered the business a bit to sort of give it the what we really thought were the, the really good title stone advantages about relationship service. Have, we got a bit of a mandate and that type of stuff. And I was the managing director of that business um, 
all the way through to um, the end of September 2022. Um, so I was running that business for about um, four years. Um, and the reason I decided I wanted to step down was purely because um, September 2022 represented my 40 year anniversary um, in full time working. And um, this is where, you know, small violins need to be deployed, because during that time, I'd never, ever managed to secure any garden leave. Uh, you know, when I left Matt West, I went to Close Brothers. When I left Close Brothers, I think maybe I got a, a week off. And then before I then started uh, Titlestone, Titlestone obviously into Paragon wasn't wasn't anything that involved garden leave. Um, I'd never involved had any sabbaticals or anything like that. So my Whilst I had holiday, obviously, it was only sort of the normal main two weeks holiday that was my longest period off during that 40 year time. And I sort of promised myself, because I had started work at 18, I always think people who go to university, uh, you know, they can spend three years at uni and then a year traveling. So I thought, well, you know what, I'll have my my sort of four years for me at the end of my career if you like so I'm I'm 59 so I thought well you know it's a little young um but I didn't want to do um nothing so I agreed with with Paragon that you know I would change my title to senior advisor for the development team um senior because I'm probably old and advisor because that's what I do um so I give them advice as and when they want it I was lucky in that I had the opportunity to discuss that quite early on with Paragon in terms of what I wanted to do at the end of September 22. Um, so I was able to bring in um, uh, Neil Moy as a deputy MD um, with the view that Neil would take over from me in, on the 1st of October 22. Um, and that was a nice sort of, it wasn't just a sudden shock, look, I've had enough, I want to be gone. Um, it was just a nice transitioning so Neil could see you know the way the business ran he'll have his own views and has his own views on the way the business runs so I don't want to be and I'm not a backseat driver um, um, I leave Neil to obviously do all the operational things and I'm giving some advice um, as and when required type of thing but it's a very sort of part-time role for me um, I guess the thing I would say is I think I timed it quite well I was able to hand over um, you know, at the end of Paragon year end, a set of figures I was happy with from the 1st of October 2022, 20, a few weeks, almost days after that mini budget. Um, it's been a really tough um, market since. So um, my uh, timing of leaving Close Brothers to join, to set up Titlestone and then get permitted development rights was very well timed. Selling it in 2018 was well timed, and uh, I think making my call to step into a different role nine months ago was pretty well timed as well. So if anyone anyone wants advice about timing, I'll uh, happy to share type of thing. For well, I, I was going to say I think there's there's definitely uh, there's definitely more more than that. Even if I look yeah. at when you moved into Close Brothers in '97, yeah. that 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 sort of coincided with the. Uh, um, you know that sort of location 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 sort of property boom is it yeah. generally you know generally speaking interest yeah. rates started to go on the way down all of a sudden property market which had been effectively d dead i mean pe people have uh, people 
you know, I mean, I was I was a child at the time, but you know, people of my parents' generation would talk about negative equity and and that mm. sort of thing being a very real factor in the early early nineties. And um, for most people who are um, my my age and younger, possibly even people who are a few years older than me, still. All we've ever really known is uh, a housing market that's that's only done one thing, which is yeah. which is rise, and that that rise kind of ninety seven, you know, new Labour government coming into power, waves of optimism. I mean, the new Labour government had inherited, I think, a very strong economy from uh, from Ken Clark as Chancellor, um, but they but they took advantage of that, and that fed through into the housing market. I think clearly Labour saw the housing market as an opportunity, and I guess that in in your your respect, that was a, probably a very good time to be getting into uh development finance with close yeah. brothers and, and and then likewise with the launch with your launch of uh of of title stone as well like what you said you know uh, as, as you said uh when you were at close post 2008 are you lending mm. um i mean that that's a that's definitely a good a good thing to hear if you've got capital that you want to deploy yeah. uh in, in that market yeah um, and I was going to say the when I when I first went to Close Brothers, I remember it quite well because it's a merchant bank, and you know they they love to play up on the the merchant banking bit. I mean, I, I always used to think, well, I'm not quite sure what that means, but it, it's a great it's a great brand. What does um, it mean? What what does it mean? Just, well, just interrupt. You'd have, you'd have to ask Close Brothers what they mean by being a merchant <laughs> bank. But I I'm always proud to say I work for a merchant bank. Um, but I think maybe some of the sort of old legacy stuff. When I first joined at Close back in sort of I think '97, um, they they liked to um, lend in what they would call the home counties, you know, and you know going down to outside the home counties. And I, I think Kent was almost looked upon as slightly dodgy and all that type of stuff. But you know, it was that sort of slightly. Uh, thinking that they that they'd worked with which is perhaps a legacy of the merchant banking bit but through the team that was sort of there and that I was part of very happy to be part of you know we grew that book and you know um, whether it was a good idea or not I always remember lending in Barnsley by the end of our time there that probably was a bad idea because Barnsley got hit quite badly in the credit crunch but it showed you how far you you would have changed to have gone you know all throughout the country um, and places that Close Brothers would have not touched in their previous guys, if you like, sort of thing. Well, uh, actually, I, I can draw some parallels from that myself. Historically, at the start of Avermore, the the only areas we generally lend in was London and the southeast, and we mm. might do we might do a little bit in Bristol or somewhere like that. And yeah. slowly, but but the thing is, it, it, when you're trying to go beyond being just a family office, yeah, into being a, a in, into being a a whole of market lender, at least as far as development finance is concerned you have to be able to serve all of england and wales and yeah. so you, you you but i think gradually you kind of expand outward and you, you've got to build up your confidence and your your risk tolerance um geographically speaking yeah. anyway um i mean ironically we one of our largest loans ever it involves a couple of residential blocks in barnsley yeah. of all things that they've been so it, it just goes to show it do i mean if you if you get the right pricing and you get the right product, you know, Barnsley can be successful. You know, we've got good exposure at the moment in the north of the country and lovely villages and towns. You just you just need to know what sells. But also be mindful that sometimes when the economy is really tough, that money is tight and money does flow away from those areas quite quickly type of stuff. So it's just being aware of the risk when you go outside of your core market. 
Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I think, sorry, no, I was. In, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead, Rob. No, I was going to say, I mean, I think you're right. It's it's always been a bit of luck and a bit of judgment, uh, these things, when, when you look back on a career. And I think everyone can look back on a career. If I hadn't taken the phone call from um, Oak Tree, who knows? Um, if I hadn't gotten the management development course at NatWest, I, I might have been on an inflatable going around the, the Solent looking at my civil service pension now rather than anything <laughs> else. So, uh, and also... When I go back to the sale of Titlestone, which is an interesting point, you know, uh, Oak Tree owned the majority of the shares of the business. The management had a had a stake, but we were very lucky in that we never got to a position where Oak Tree was saying, look, we want to sell this to this other debt fund or an equity house who wants to go on another five year journey. Um, I was very keen that we actually find a home for it, you know, and finding a home in a in a in a bank like Patrigan, who have been established, you know, over 35 years, who've got the the values that that I like and respected. They're they're Birmingham based. Um, they've got a great loan book in buy to let that we're looking. I think have got their banking license in in something like 2014, 2015, and we're looking to expand other bits of their commercial book. Um, it was a good home, and um, it, we were lucky that Oak Tree considered them the right buyer um and we were very happy to come along with that because otherwise it would have been a case of us saying well we're not sure we want to stay on and that would have been tension and all that type of stuff so again just just a bit of luck that the 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 stars aligned at the right time yeah um so so much of so much of uh success and failure is just about timing you know and yeah. I, I have an expression it's it, it's it's not it's not no it's just not now that that's yeah. often the that's often the way um yeah. i mean I, I did note though that you, you didn't go to uni which by the way is uh yeah. it was actually quite a common theme of yeah. a lot of the people that we've had on we've had on the podcast and um uh, which i think is uh which i think is is quite interesting uh yeah. and maybe is a function of uh you know drive and desire and just wanting to you know work and do things rather than that ra- yeah, rather than for, just just sit and learn yeah for me it was interesting I mean I, I will I will blow my own trumpet here and I got three A's at A level back in 1982 so it wasn't a question of oh this guy's flunked it it was a couple of things I went to the school I went to school in Harrow but I always say I went to the bottom of the hill rather than the top of the hill and it wasn't one of those schools. You'd have thought, you know, an A-level student with the capacity to get three A's, there'd be someone sitting on his shoulder saying, you know, which unis do you go to? And I look at my uh, youngest daughter's school, um, you know, the, the, the preparation they do about sort of writing the sort of which unis and all that type of stuff. It didn't really exist in, in my school. It was more a question of what are you going to do? Um, and I would, I think my parents, I'm the youngest of four, and I think my parents definitely wanted me to go and get a job please you know get off the payroll and um that west at the time and, and most of the banking sectors didn't didn't take graduates i think they used to call them super grads which shows you the level that they came in they wanted you to start at 18 um and therefore you know when they came around the, the, the sixth form college with their brochures it was like coming at 18 join us now and probably as i referenced before that the fact that you know, I think in 1982, the unemployment rate was approaching 10%. And I remember my economics A-levels doing 
projects on factories shutting down and you know mass unemployment in certain areas you just thought someone's offered me a job here um for the grand total of three thousand pound a year I'm, mm-hmm. I'm i'm living at home i'm gonna i'm gonna get a car i'm gonna get a girlfriend i've got a salary <laughs> you know there's no way i'm giving that up type of stuff and uh it went from there um but it's interesting now i, I think the world has changed so much that to actually find you know the clearing banks which i'm not aware of you know you know it's hard to go in as a generalist and then find a specialism as i did it's sort of you know you you need to offer something straight away but there was certainly a bit of a drive not not so much i see it more when i recruit people who didn't go to uni now who almost want to say look you know i want to show the people that have gone to uni that i can do just as well you know you see that in their eyes sometimes that it's not like you know i could have gone but by the time I'm 21, 22, I want to I want to have had a decent start to my career, earning a good salary, and I don't want the student debt type of stuff. And I think that's a, a fair reflection sometimes. We we see it in the specialist finance market. I mean, Aidan Moore employs a number of people who who, who are non-university graduates, and mm. they they are generally three or four years ahead in their careers. Um, and you know, we we had have and now departed uh, head of underwriting. You know, who uh, who who was a, a non-university graduate and you could see that, that that there was like you said that there's a sort of a bit of a fire in their belly a kind of a chip on yeah. the shoulder in a positive way there's a chip on the shoulder that, that they have something to prove yeah. um uh, you know that it's it's not unusual i think for some people who are who've gone through the graduate route who sort of then float around in the early parts of their careers and and, and it's only when they sort of turn 30 that they start to take their careers yeah. a bit more seriously sure um but on, on a related note, I, I could I noted that you you've spent um, seven years in, in you know in, in various branches before you moved up to the the head office in this in the city of London. Yeah. Um. As as you'll have experience of now, you, when you work with younger people, people mm. in their early twenties, there's uh, and and I, and I would count myself amongst them when I when I was the same age. People, you, people invariably want to do things at 100 miles an hour, and they want they want the the responsibility, and they want the the perks and the opportunities. Yeah. Yesterday, you you clearly showed great levels of patience with uh, with the role as as a young man yeah. to to sort of stick at it in that sort of regional branch. Uh, branch setup before you meant, went and moved into into head office I guess mm. a, a, a move that you probably uh, actively pushed for mm. um, what would you say to someone who's who's at the early stages of their career as as far as approach is concerned you know the things that served you well yes it's an interesting observation I think it was, it was definitely a different time I mean I became a manager at NatWest when I was 28 and that was seen as really really young um, and I made the most I mean I moved um, probably four times with house moves to make that career happen so I you know I started off in Southampton did a house move came up to the city I did a, a house move up to the Cotswolds because I was part of the uh, training team I did a house move back you know I'm, I'm taking you know my family with me at this time um friends that i've got um 
may have stayed in Southampton and had had a lesser career because they wanted to to balance. So I would always say um, make the most of in opportunities that are given to you, and sometimes you've got to make some sacrifices for that. Um, but I am a great believer in if you're good enough, you're old enough. And I've benefited from that in the context of people might say, well, 10 years is is forever. And, but that was in the context of 1982. Um, so we like to find talent um, and we've taken talent in from um, university and people who joined um, one person in particular who joined um, uh, Titlestone. Um, having left school at 16 and, you know, really hungry person and was made a senior relationship director at Titlestone and at Paragon um, in their sort of mid to late 20s. And, you know, I am a very firm believer, you know, if you're good enough, you're old enough. Um, so, but it's it's about having, what are you going to do to make yourself better? What are you going to do to make yourself good enough? I mean, I... I left school at um, 18, but I didn't stop taking professional exams until I was 30. So, you know, I did um, the Institute, uh, Chartered Institute of Banking exams. I did the Association of Corporate Treasury exams. I went to night school with my wife and we did a, um, a, a degree from uh, Manchester University in financial services. So, you know, we were doing that whilst we were working. Um, so you do have to um make some commitments some sacrifice um you have to go to corporate events you have to utilize all that how you sell yourself there's there's no point just sitting there saying um i'm i'm good come and find me that that sort of vibe um and you've got to be likable if i'm honest with you as well there's, there's three things i always think when it comes to business um to make a slightly broader note um, I think to be successful, you've got to people got to know you exist uh, as a business. There's no point being the best business that no one knows. Um, you've got to be credible, especially in our business. You know, people are putting a lot of trust in you to be there on a completion date in real estate. You know, that's one thing that you know. It's not like you're buying a car or something like that. If, if you've exchanged contracts to buy a site on a property, and your funder phones you up and says, "Oh, there's a problem." that's not on. And the third bit to go alongside, they know you exist and you're credible, is they've got to like you um, as a person. Um, because if they don't like you, there's plenty of other people they can go and see. So I often stress that when we're hiring people, it's like, are you likable? You know, have you got that ability to put people at ease? Do you not take yourself too seriously? You know, in 100 years time, everyone's going to forgotten who we are and all that type of stuff, you know. Um, are you going to be someone who can look a client in the eye and think this is someone I'm going to be enjoying spending time working with? Because, again, unlike a mortgage where you don't really have a relationship with your mortgage provider, you just get the notice once every two or five years there's a renewal coming up um, in development finance. It's every month. It could be every week. Um, it's about having empathy, having understanding, um, a developer's life is so complicated you know i have nothing but admiration for um developers we you know, dealing with the planners dealing with vendors dealing with contractors agents bankers and um 
I'm actually very proud of the strap line that Titlestone um, used, um, which is probably a bit long forgotten now. But the story was I was in Spain. So I do take a lot of holidays. You've noticed that, you know, uh, I often reference I was on holiday. And I got this call and this was July 2012. And someone said to me, look, we're launching. We haven't got a strap line. And I was in Spain and it was about five o'clock in the afternoon. And I literally just said, oh, I don't know. How about something like straightforward funding in a complicated world? And it literally just came out of my mouth like that. And someone went, yeah, OK. And we actually used that for six years. And it basically sums up for me, you know, my approach to, to funding is like the it's a complicated world. I mean, it's particularly complicated now, isn't it? When you look about mm. it, it's always been fairly complicated, but a developer's life is super complicated. And the one thing you sort of want is your funding to be pretty straightforward. You know, when you're building, you want to put your application in, you want someone to review it, and you want someone to pay it as long as everything stacks up. You don't want some long debate about all this and that, and, you know, can you fill in this, you know, three-page report, and we can't do this. You know, because you just want to move on from stuff. And I, I've always thought, I don't know where that came from, but I've, I've always been quite proud of it, but of that sort of thing. Um, I, I think one of the secrets to your success, though, is that you're, you're also very client-centric. I mean, I, I've made a note here that you, you know, when you were at Close Brothers, and it's, it's not, not taking advantage of clients. Hmm. Um, and so, I, and I think that, you know, you, you're obviously a. a You've looked at the, the 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 challenge, the problem facing mm. the developer, the, the client, and saying, right, okay, they, this guy's got this guy or girl has got enough problems to worry mm. about. I need to I need to make their life as easy as possible as far as what I'm doing. Yeah. So uh, in, inevitably, that that's going to have driven a lot of the a lot of the repeat custom that that you've got. I mean. It, Aside, you know, you know, obviously you have you've got a good set of personal values, both mm. within business and life more generally. I mean, aside from the ones that you've already mentioned, are there any other key personal values that that you think are, have been really integral to, you know, your success as both a business person and a human? Yeah, well, I think the way I would look at it is when you're running a business, if you if I always like to think the customer of the customer proposition you know like the customer is in the center i think sometimes big businesses uh, or, or banks clearing banks can sometimes think the customer is just one of those things that sort of gets in the way they've got a system they've got a process especially regulated banks you know they've, they're being hit all the time by this and that regulation and the customer somehow feels like you know they've got to bend towards what you're trying to do um it's much easier in a debt fund because they're not they don't have that same level of regulation. But I think I always like to think, right, OK, when we're introducing something, how is this impacting on the customer's proposition? You know, is it helping? Is it hindering? If we're, if we're implementing something, are we taking something else away? And all that type of thing. Um, because I think in lending, I think too many lenders a bit think that when they lend money to customers, they're almost doing them a favor this is development funding it's like you know we've put our trust in you mr customer you better not let us down and i take a slightly different view to that which is um if your customer turns out not to be great 
as long as it's not a huge customer, it's not going to do your bank massive damage. It's going to give you some inconvenience. You know, it's going to, you know, annoy you as a lender who's maybe supported that client. It's going to cause you some irritation if you're chasing for arrears or information. But if you swap it the other way around and say, if you're the developer and your bank starts to get into trouble and cause you problems, that's a, that's like a you know, business ending event sometimes, as we saw in the credit crunch, you know, if your bank suddenly says, do you know what, we fancy our money back, our funding's a problem, or change of relationship, and it's not great what it was, or we're not, we're going back on that, then that can cause your, you as a developer, for your whole life to suddenly come to a grinding halt in terms of business, and problems and refinancing. So, I think it's useful for lenders to always remember that the client, when they sign the facility letter, is actually putting a massive amount of trust in you as the lender to come through that credibility bit. And I think if you keep that to the forefront of your mind and you treat people as you would like to be treated, I mean, it's hard to put yourself in a in a developer's shoes, but I think we're all we're all good enough to know. Does that feel fair? I mean, <clears throat> treating customers fairly is one of those pat phrases that a lot of people use. Um, but when I was um, running the business, I used to say to my team, if you ever see a, if you ever see an instance where you don't think we're treating the customers fairly, then, you know, absolutely come and say something to me or one of the senior management team. If you think I've done something unfair, because I think you, you'll probably know, Michael, the you know, in the heat of a credit debate of where the client's mucking you about or hasn't done something, you can go, right, we've got the power to do this. We've got the power to to do that. Um, and you've got to take a step back and say that's not fair. And I think one of the things I heard from the credit crunch, especially from some of the, the banks, was sort of all these management charges that would suddenly appear. You know, a client would, would be transferred off to an insolvency unit. And the insolvency practitioner would turn up or one of the member of the bank's team and would be charging, you know, the best part of two, three hundred pounds an hour for their time. And that was apparently allowed. Um, and it just felt a bit unfair because, you know, the client can't do anything and um, that type of stuff. So management charges, these fees coming out of nowhere, just just we we can do it because we, we've got the power in the facility to do it. I think. That is something that I've always thought, you know, don't do it because reputationally it will follow you around the market. And what clients really like is, you know, you may not be the cheapest. There may be someone out there who's cheaper, but if they can find another deal and roll on to the next deal without going right through the market or through a broker network, they'll do it as long as you're not silly about your pricing. Um, and repeat business is is gold dust. You know, if if your clients go off to other client, other lenders, it's quite hard to get them back um, and therefore repeat business. And I was very proud at Titlestone, you know, 70 percent of our business at the end plus was repeat business. And I think that's the biggest compliment you can get that people think you've got um, a degree of integrity, that they, they, they like you and they think you can deliver. I mean, I think that's. Uh... I, I couldn't have put any of that any better myself, frankly. Many of the many of the things that you talk about there, we try very hard. We've tried very hard historically with Avermore <clears throat> that just because we have a, a loan agreement and a, a set of security documents that says we can do X, Y, and Z, 
doesn't mean doesn't mean you have to you should be enforcing those just because you can charge a default rate of x percent a month um above the uh, above the prevailing uh, regular interest rate doesn't mean you should do so no. uh, you 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 ultimately have you have a reputation and a reputation you need to uphold and, and i think the other thing is that your you know less so for less it, it slightly differently to title stone is aiden was probably a little bit more broker driven and if you know if you if you if you mess a, a client around who's come to you directly they might tell a few of their friends but if you mess a broker around that that broker especially if it's a very active broker you know you could be cutting off a very large source of uh, yeah. of business so you so you have to be very very um judicious in how you you do things and the one thing that I, I would say though is that if someone takes the absolute mickey then mm. you know as a developer and when i'm sure you've experienced it over over the 40 plus years of your career yeah. At some point, you've got to you you, you you've you, you, you've got to put you've got to you've got to yeah, put that down. You're absolutely. It's about fairness. Fairness isn't always <laughs> saying what the client wants you to do because obviously the client would love you to lend all the money for their overruns and charge you less interest and no fees and give a discount when they come to repay. That's obviously not business. Um, I've always been slightly shy of using the phrase funding partner because um, I know it's a bit pedantic, but I view as a funding relationship, but the, when you use the word partner, that sort of means we share in your losses and we share in your gains mm. and your profits. And, uh, you know, we often have difficult conversations with clients because we are a senior debt provider. We provide an interest and fee. And when things don't go well, um, it's really for us to be understanding and empathetic and to see what we can do within reason. But ultimately, it's for the shareholders and other providers of finance to um, find a solution to that uh, and i think the we're a funding partner can be bandied around a bit too easily and when things are going well and being withdrawn quite quickly when uh, a, a partnership arrangement is sort of suggested uh, i think that's uh, i think that's entirely right um there there is an element of partnership about yeah. development finance uh well development lender and uh, and borrower i think the the minute the minute that the you know especially if you're looking at not uh, demolishing an existing structure bef uh, and, yeah. and digging holes in the ground i think the, the minute that the development lenders uh existing security from the day one security starts to be devalued your yeah. your fates are somewhat intertwined yeah um, absolutely. but 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 you're right you, you know you're you're right to also distinguish that it is the the, yeah. the element of I partnership think, is it's it's a it is a very it's a loose partnership if it's at a loose best. partnership yeah i mean i that's why i like relationship you know relationship is about valuing each other we understand what each one par party brings to the party um, we understand that there's empathy, understanding that things, you know, whenever you're digging holes in the ground and knocking things apart, things will not go well. There will be overruns, there will be um, delays, there will be problems along the way with planners and, and other parties, neighbours. And that's why specialist development funders can't be too purist. Um, I remember stories with some of the, the lenders that I was competing with in title stone days early days they used to put all their um monitoring surveying and sort of construction documentation to their lawyers um now you can imagine you know um that 
that's a difficult one to get anything signed off if you, if you're outsourced you know can i sign off this drawdown and it's gone through a, a legal system um whereas i actually like the idea of you know we we sign off our construction drawdowns in house you know and we use our expertise to know when things are red flagged that we should we should really get to the bottom of this if someone's saying is look you know this money is going to erode your security rather than add to it or someone's doing something against the planning but if there are other cases where look you know this is a bit delayed this bit of paperwork hasn't quite arrived on our desk then you take a commercial view and you look for it within a reasonable time scale it's that sort of debate no i will also if you're because because i think one of the one of the things that we've learned over the years with enable is that if you it, you, you know you can try and overly perfect that uh, you know the, the drawdown requests and have every single condition precedent um mm. document and, and piece of information in hand but if you do that then you potentially slow down the progress of a developer's build um you know and you know potentially prejudice uh the the profitable outcome for the the developer and uh, although it's not really happened to us uh, yet you do put yourself at risk as the lender um if uh you know if the develop if you put the developer in a position where their their cash flow evaporates and they yeah, have, to, have to mothball the site yeah because subcontractors get nervous they slow down all that type of stuff so you know withholding drawdowns is is almost a nuclear option you know it has to be done only because you think that actually paying it would erode your security or it would go somewhere else type of thing yeah, so yeah quite um Given I'm conscious of time, but mm. I think it'd be it'd be remiss of me not to to speak to you about your you know your read of the current market and the current macroeconomic environment that we're in, um, mm. especially taking advantage of you know the the 40 plus years of uh, that you've been in you know in in the real estate finance industry, and um, looking at where we are looking at where we are now, where do you see the greatest parallels in in previous cycles it does do we feel like we're kind of in late 80s early 90s or is or is there other or are there other cycles that you think that we have more similarities to and how, how do you see things playing out from here yeah well i think if i had to choose a sort of a cycle i think i would probably say sort of 90 1991 type of feel which seems a long time ago i think what you could absolutely say well he says absolutely you know banks can always surprise you but it, unlike the the credit crunch i think the banks are strong you know the 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 capital requirements that the, the government put in place uh the regulation i think will work uh very well so this one doesn't feel like it's the fact that the funders are, have got a problem um i think it's the challenges in the the housing market um i i would think there are five five little things that were supporting the the housing market um i think two of them are still strong which is um unemployment is low and um they're not building enough houses so there there are two pillars of the housing market which are pretty robust still um two which i think were strong which are now weaker uh significantly weaker are you know historically low interest rates which is a real big one and also quasi banker mum and dad stroke help to buy you know what i'm calling about sort of third party help with equity and i think the the banker mum and dad has helped a lot of people get on the housing ladder i, I don't particularly like that thought that you know people who haven't got a, a 
banker mum and dad can't. I think there's a society question now. But certainly I think it will still happen. But those parents who were thinking of, say, refinancing their matrimonial home to release equity to give their kids will, will certainly take a pause with that. And um, I think that the the help to buy, you know, has has faded away. Um, we didn't do an awful lot with help to buy, but some of the national house builders obviously was a great source of um, sales for them. So if you take the sort of those two till strong, you know, which are um, you know uh, low in low levels of unemployment and um, the fact that they're not building enough houses, offset that with the two really weaker ones, you know high interest rates relatively to where they've been and the, and the lack of help to buy and bank of mum and dad. And the fifth one is the one which is unknown, which is sentiment. You know, the housing market just relies on the fact if I don't buy today, um, it will be more expensive tomorrow and therefore I'll buy today and it's sort of cause and effect. And I think as soon as you get that sort of feeling like, well, you know what, I might wait uh, if I'm a cash buyer, first time buyer, um, we all know that the buy to let landlords, unless you're, you know, in the professional category, which luckily Paragon's uh, vast majority clients are. But if you're an amateur landlord, doesn't make a lot of economic sense these days unless you're very lowly geared. Um, so I think that sentiment is is being judged. And I think if you get sentiment changing in Daily Mail headlines, which is sort of house price crash and all that type of stuff, it's going to be a difficult market, but I think when you see the amount of um, increase in mortgage rates or, in, or mortgage payments coming through, which is probably only a third of the way through, it's it's going to be a a tough market for the housing. Um, I think people still have a great desire to own their own house. I mean, what's the alternative? Live at home, rent. So get in there and and, and buy a place if you can. I think discretionary spending in 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 world of hospitality will will be, will be hit because that's you know if you can save money by buying a takeaway rather than going out for a, for a meal every weekend that's going to happen. So yeah, I and you've got an election coming up next next year which is always a bit uncertain. So it doesn't surprise me at all. I think where we are at the moment is the supply of development finance is is strong, you know. I can't think of too many lenders um who have pulled out of the market in the last 12 months or so you know if anything new lenders have come in i think the demand for development finance is is less and that's not surprising if i was a developer and i was in my as i am in my late 50s and i've been through a few cycles and i didn't have a great big machine to feed i might be thinking well you know bill costs are uncertain the market's uncertain GDVs are a little uncertain. I might just take a pause or only develop sites that I've got really great margins in because I've maybe I bought them with planning and I've added planning gain and I've held them for many years. I've got marriage values, but to go out and just buy a site on market with full planning and pay top whack, take a punt on construction and take a punt on GDV, um, you've got to be brave. Um, mm. If you've made if you've made a lot of money personally over the last 10 years you don't really want to go back to your family if you did that in the credit crunch and say oh guess what I've I've got a few guarantees on it I need to sort of pay out on that would be a bad conversation to have with other halves and, and family so I think it will be tough I think 
when there's when there's a slightly oversupply of capital chasing fewer deals, you know what happens. People start to compete on price, then they start to compete on risk, then they start to compete on both. And you're hopeful, as I would be, that that allows a readjustment in the market and the strong lenders with who've been sensible can then come through and then you might get back to that are you lending rather than what you charge which is mm. like the full circle of of where we've been type of thing do, uh, do you see uh, do you see it to be likely i mean you talk about the, the availability of the fi- development finance but mm. do you see that there's going to be much likelihood of, of of lenders pulling back their criteria um particularly particularly say in the you know the the challenger bank space for example um do you think that they're going to be a bit more a, a bit more reluctant to to be offering high loads gdvs high loan to cost yeah i think i, I don't think they're going to have any problem with capital at all um, um i think sensibly they might say well this is a time not for amateurs so be choosier on who they back and you know and backing existing clients who have proven you um would be the way to go um be sensible on you know not pushing the leverage too much you'd have to be brave um to be pushing leverage at this stage at, at this stage in the cycle um i think where there may be some interest to me about outside the the, the banking space is in the some of the debt funds um it's only an observation, but you know, if if you're American-backed fund, um, I'm not sure what the American real estate world is like, but you know, you've seen some commentary about the sort of the reduction in values of shopping centres in the UK and commercial assets and and office space. If if your fund happens to be backed by a sort of a large American fund who's got majority of exposure in America and it starts to have problems. It may look at the UK housing market with an election coming up and uncertainty and think, you know what, we don't we don't really need that sort of slight sort of headache anymore. And they might just decide either they'll recycle the funds that they've got there or just pull back gradually. But I don't think they'd make a tremendous difference. I, I would be personally surprised if um, any of the big material lenders will be overcome with sort of we need to get out of here type of stuff. But all lenders can do things quietly behind the scenes just to tighten up criteria as such. But I think, as I said, the main challenge will be finding the decent development deals which are out there um, to back. And that just needs a bit of patience. And it's it's interesting to be patient when you actually don't actually know when things are going to readjust. If, if the market's not going to readjust until after the election in the end of 2024 or you know, mortgage rates have, have sort of come and resettled back again. That's quite a long time for a for a big team to be patient. Um, but that's that's the watchword for me type of thing. So so the your advice to, to people generally would be at the moment to be patient and be selective, would it? Yeah. Well my advice would that would have been my advice always, if I'm always. honest with you. Yeah, you know, when I was at Titlestone uh, when I was at Close watching RBS and Anglo-Irish um, and Bank of Scotland lending, what from my desk looked like aggressive lending at the at a price you couldn't match. I mean, we used to look at deals, development deals, which I think were priced at sub 2% above base. And I used to say to myself, well, 
if it was finished, what would you charge? If it was finished and let, what would you charge? If it was finished and let to the government, I presume you'd be paying them money because, you know, charging a sub 2% margin on development finance at high loan to cost is an unsustainable business model. Now, I suppose luckily for someone like me when I was at Close, everything changed in that sort of October 2008. Obviously, it was slowing down before then, but when everyone blew themselves up, the Icelandic banks, Irish and Scots, it, it was a bit Armageddon. You know, I don't think anyone from a from an economy point of view wants to see that. Um, but that was about being patient. You know, it's about keeping the patience that things would change. I think. Uh, as I sit here today, and it's easy for me to say because, you know, I've now spent my time, if you like, uh, with executive responsibilities is about how are you patient when you're not entirely sure that the, the supply of development finance is going to change? You're waiting for the demand for it to pick up. And that's something which, you know, when you look forward into this market, it's, it's quite hard to see changing quite soon. Um, mm. That type of thing. Yeah, well, I, the, the, the way I look at the market at the moment is that the, the there's a very broad range of outcomes uh, that we could face, and yeah. so it's very and, and it's very hard to it's very hard to determine which way it's get, which way it's going to play out. Yeah. But I, I think fund if I look at the fundamentals, and, and actually one of the key things for me is that the the number of uh, new development sites with planning permission particularly at the smaller end because i think the largest uh, larger end of course the we, we all know about larger house builders and they will yeah. they will land bank them but the sites that are more likely to come to the market quicker which are the you know smaller and medium sized sites fewer of those are, are being granted consent and i'm an, yeah. i'm active i'm an active investor in um, in the planning space particularly in um, in the home counties um, and getting consensus is really difficult. So I think what we'll find is that in the short term, if you if you try to sell a site and you're in a rush, you're you're probably going to take a bit of a bath on on price. Mm. Um, but there's because there's not going to be enough stock coming through in 18, 24 months time, the knock on effect of that is that house prices are we're going to see house prices probably increase as a consequence of that, probably coinciding also with interest rates then starting to soften off. Um, and then, and that will then feed in, and construction prices softening off because there's fewer sites to build to 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 build on, mm. uh, and therefore that will feed into more aggressive land values. That's mostly my hypothesis. We'll obviously yeah, I, have I to see how it plays out. I used to say that you know, house prices. You know, if if I said house prices will be more in 2033 than they are today, everyone would go, yeah, of course they will be, and that, and I think they're absolutely right. But it will be. It's not a smooth line. It's a series no. of jagged edges to get there. And the trouble when you're a, a developer, also a little bit when you're a lender, you're never quite sure if you, you end up launching on one of those jagged edges that sort of you run for six months or so type of thing. But you're absolutely right. I think, you know, it will change the fundamentals of there aren't enough houses being built. People want to buy houses. Interest rates start to come down a bit. Construction contractors start to price a bit more aggressively. Vendors of land get a bit more realistic. It turns again um, in a way, though, you're either going to be patient and wait for that to happen 
or there's an event outside of our control that accelerates that until it comes around type of stuff. That That's the way obviously it can happen in economics, isn't it? Something happens and it just accelerates what would have happened over a longer period type of thing. So and I think developers who are, who are well capitalized but have got supported banks will look around and think, yeah, actually, depending where I am in my cycle, I'd quite like there to be a little adjustment because then I can swoop in and get some decent viable projects on the go again. Well, I guess we'll 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 have to see how it plays out. Yeah, um, Robert, I, I'm uh, I'm very sorry to say, but I think we're out of time. That's uh, a shame. Been appreciating this, but I I, I think uh, what we can say is there can be a, we can do a round two because uh, I think there's a lot more ground that we can cover. Um, Robert, if if someone wants to reach out to you, is the what's the best way to get hold of you? Is it LinkedIn or or, or is there another yeah. another way people can get in touch? Yeah, maybe LinkedIn would be a good one. I mean, I'm I'm a very poor social media type person, but I have a profile on LinkedIn. If people want to use that as a way to make contact, always delighted to hear uh, from people, especially if they're people who see this and I haven't spoken to for a while. That's always quite nice. Well, Robert, it's been a it's been a pleasure. Uh, yeah. I thank you and appreciate you, and obviously hold to you in very high regard, a lot of respect. And uh, as as I may have mentioned to you in the past, you know, I'd always I always used to say in credit meetings, you know, what what would Titlestone do? Yeah. Um, we we always modelled ourselves on on being a, a sort of mini Titlestone at Avonmore. Uh, hopefully, one day reaching similar similar heights. So thank you for for being an inspiration to me and to to other lenders in our industry and uh, you know you, you have my utmost respect so thank you again and uh, we look forward to seeing seeing you again on the the podcast sometime soon thanks michael really enjoyed it thanks for that that's great a big thank you goes out to the official sponsor of the property funder podcast avonmore capital a property bridging and development lender located here in london they, as much as me, understand the importance of somebody's story and how they got to where they are. Lending on projects from just £250,000 across the entirety of England and Wales, their understanding of all development backgrounds and can help support you at any stage in a scheme, even if you just have one brick down. Visit www.avonmorecapital.com to find out more about how they can help you in your development journey. Thanks so much for tuning into this podcast. I hope you can go away having learned something new and even picked up some new things to apply to your day today. Catch us in the next episode for another interesting story.